Uh, this was an editorial published in the New York Times, January 1st, 1978. Every so often, civil, civil libertarians put themselves in the uncomfortable position of antagonizing those who consider themselves friends of freedom by supporting its enemies, such as communists or the Ku Klux Klan. In recent months, the American Civil Liberties Union has lost members and money as a result of its defense of the right of the American Nazis to parade through Skokie, Illinois. The Nazis' choice of this Chicago suburb was no accident, and the opposition it has aroused is understandable. Most of the residents of Skokie are Jews. Several thousand of them are survivors of Hitler's concentration camps. The Nazis selected Skokie because they knew that the ensuing protests would give publicity to their minuscule movement. Opponents of the march argued that for a group to display swastikas and to stage a parade through such a town constitutes a provocative act that goes beyond the right to freedom of speech guaranteed by the First Amendment. The Civil Liberties Union disagrees. Holding to principle that has guided it for many years, its executive director, I.A. Nehrer, himself a refugee from Nazi Germany, asks, Did the Wobblies have the right to speak in company towns? Did Jehovah's Witnesses or birth control advocates have the right to pass out leaflets in Catholic neighborhoods? Did Norman Thomas have the right to speak in Frank Haig's Jersey City? Did Paul Robeson have the right to sing at a concert in Peekskill, New York? Did Martin Luther King have the right to march in Selma, Alabama or in Cicero, Illinois? To all these questions, the, ACLU, the ACLU's answer is yes. Any confrontation in Skokie would be painful as the disciples of murderers flaunt their hated symbols in the faces of people who survived the gas ovens. But on this issue, the ACLU has no choice. As Mr. Nearer explains, if his organization is not faithful to the principle that free speech must be defended for all, then it does not deserve the word civil liberties in its name. Hello, friends. This is Rob from the Shadow of Rockford Tower in the Bunker Studio. Uh, we're entrenched on the front lines in the battle with the Delaware Way elites. Carl is producing from a secured, undisclosed location, and beaming in is Mike Brinkner. Uh, Brickner. Mike is a civil uh, rights attorney and a relatively new executive director of the Delaware chapter of the ACLU. Uh, Mike, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. And I, I will do one correction. I am not an attorney, but I am a civil libertarian. A civil libertarian. Yes, a, a civil rights advocate, uh, we should say. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, and where, where did you grow up? Um, what was it like? And I always think that there's something that informs or influences people's career in advocacy and especially civil rights work and social justice work. Um, yeah, so what was your childhood like, and uh, what, how did it uh, influence you? Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in uh, uh, rural Ohio, um, so I'm originally from the Buckeye State, and I grew up in this really small town called uh, Van Wert, uh, which is um, about halfway between um, Toledo and Dayton, and it's probably closest to Fort Wayne, Indiana, but it's a very um, rural, conservative town. Um, my family, we kind of grew up a little bit communally. My um, dad and uncle and grandmother all owned a funeral home and ambulance business. Uh, so my dad and my uncle took it over at 16 when their father passed away suddenly of a heart attack. Um, he, uh, my, my dad and my uncle had to graduate high school early, go to mortuary school as teenagers, and um, take over this gigantic business in the 1960s, and my grandmother had to be an anchor for it for uh, many years as a single woman back when, you know, women really couldn't own businesses. Um, so it was a pretty uh, crazy time, and my family um, uh, owned the business, and my dad and uncle still run the funeral home business. They retired from the uh, ambulance business about uh, five or six years ago. Uh, it got a little bit too busy for them, but uh, they're continuing on with the funeral home. Uh, but my my upbringing was pretty um, average. You know, we were around um, uh, a, a lot of uh, very conservative uh, uh, forces. Um, my parents were um, both, you know, probably moderate conservatives. Um, I grew up um, not really super tuned into political things um, until I was about a sophomore in high school. I went to a program 
at Northwestern University um, uh, called uh, Junior State of America, where you essentially go for like eight weeks to a college and you learn about advanced placement government and uh, constitutional law and that type of thing. Um, and there uh, in the book, um, we learned about all of these different U.S. Supreme Court cases. And it was the first time that I'd ever heard about this group called the ACLU. And in almost all of the cases, I agreed with them. Um, and I never really thought about where I landed politically, but I was like, oh, I really agree with everything that this organization is advocating for. Um, so I remember my parents picked me up in the van in Chicago and drove me back to Ohio. And they asked, well, what did you learn? And I said, well, someday I want to work for the ACLU. They seem like this really great organization. Um, to which my dad actually responded immediately and said, if you ever work for them, I will disown you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was, was wondering not, how that reaction would have, would have gone he, over. He, he, he was really big into um, Boy Scouts. I'm actually an Eagle Scout myself. And that was, those were during the times where the ACLU was actually suing the Boy Scouts uh, over um, inclusion of LGBT folks and also um, atheists. And my dad thought that that would be the end of the Boy Scouts. Uh, but we had a very long conversation on the four-hour drive back to home about why he was wrong. And he's now very supportive these days. But, um, yeah, he was totally against the ACLU. And what's interesting, actually, that same summer, uh, then um, the ACLU of Ohio actually filed a lawsuit, not against my school district, but against another school district uh, where that, that was uh, in my community, uh, where they were putting in um, flyers for church services into all the school uh, students' mailboxes. And they filed a lawsuit saying that was a vi violation of church uh, state principles. And the whole summer after I got home, there were all of these letters to the editor in the community newspaper saying that the ACLU was, was contributing to the end of society and keeping prayer out of school and all of this stuff and how evil of an organization they were. And I was like, no, I agree with them. And I love this organization now. So um, it was quite serendipitous that that lawsuit was filed almost immediately as soon as I got home from that experience. Yeah. So just by, yeah, just by almost um, the chance of, of going to this and getting that out of that course and then sort of, being immersed in that issue right away it was it just happened the, the the thing clicked on for you yeah yeah and interestingly so i went to high school in you know the late 90s and um the aclu of ohio actually filed another lawsuit while i was in uh, high school at my school um one of my classmates um after the uh columbine shootings you know there were all of these um censorship programs out uh, where they were trying to keep students, particularly who listened to Marilyn Manson, from wearing any kind of Marilyn Manson t-shirts at school. And so one of my classmates got suspended because he wore a Marilyn Manson t-shirt and the ACLU came and defended him. And so, you know, I saw just in my high school world where, you know, the ACLU was picking up cases that I thought was really important that they were defending people who um, uh, you know, didn't, who, who didn't represent the majority opinion in my community, um, but that they were defending people, whether or not it was um, popular or not, that they were uh, married to that principle. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I'm a, only a little bit older, but some things never change. For us, it was Judas Priest. They caused all like the, the devil worship and all of that, and they just changed it to one other thing. So I remember that time it was very strange. Um, I, 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 that story really is profound with me because I've been doing, a, having a lot of conversations and talking to a lot of people just about the best way to organize people for mass movement politics, um, you know, and, and convince people that by organizing, we can solve some of the material problems through the political process. <clears throat> and one of the things I always come back to is this idea of like, you label something and it all automatically gets put in sort of like a cultural team so it's a socialist thing or it's a conservative thing or it's this or that um but when you talk about uh, an issue or a program you can get a lot of agreement we saw it with the elections that just happened where places that are conservative that voted conservative and voted republican also voted for a 15 dollars minimum wage also voted for marijuana uh, legalization and other drug legalization etc on and on and you had that experience with your father in the van it was like without putting something 
in a in a team box. Let's just look at what they fought for in this situation. In this situation, these are the things that I learned about. Um, so you take it outside of the sort of the cultural um, event of the of the fight, and you just talk about well, they're just supporting things that I think we all agree are something that you know if you if you're gonna be consistent, we should be fighting for these across the board. Uh, and it's, so it's an interesting um, it's an interesting connection to that concept. Well, we always say in the ACLU that we have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. That you know, some people who we may vehemently disagree with on some issues might actually be some of our biggest supporters on other issues. Um, because when you when you think about you know defending the entire Constitution, all of the rights and the Bill of Rights, and all of the liberties that are given to us. It covers a wide range of, of issues. And even, you know, among the ACLU staff and board, um, we like to say, um, you know, dissent is patriotic and that even among staff members and board members, I've never met anyone who agrees with the ACLU 100% of the time, right? That there's always things that we're like, wait a second, I don't know if I totally agree with that. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing for us as an organization is we are such a diverse uh, uh, organization with a diversity of opinions, but also diversity of people and people who have different experiences in the world. And so we're constantly evolving our uh, positions, but we are also keeping uh, true to those sort of base principles. And I, I think that that allows us to be able to oftentimes work across political differences, to work with people who might not typically be in coalition with one another. And that's really the only way that you're going to get lasting change. I mean, we can go to, to the courts and ask in lawsuits to get all sorts of laws struck down or, or policies uh, removed from the books. But you have to eventually win the hearts and minds of people. Uh, a, a court can't uh, enforce public policy the same way that if we understand that this is what justice means or this is what freedom means and this is what we have to do to ensure that for all of our people, if, if, if the majority of the public believes that, then that is when you're really going to get that systemic and lasting change. Yeah. I, I, again, this is right to something that when I was preparing for this, I, I started thinking about because I do want to talk about some specific issues that are specific to Delaware. And the first one was um, the probation system, which isn't specific to Delaware, but the ACLU um, just uh, put out a report a month or two ago. Uh, about how it works in practice, what the outcomes are. Um, and we covered it in the Delaware call because I think that, that was very important. Um, the other one uh, was the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights because I think that that um, is a way that, uh, you know, people's, people's civil liberties are being trampled almost uh, in secret by design. Uh, and I think that's going to come up in the next General Assembly session. And also the prison system in general. You know, we had an uprising here. Uh, we're having a huge, I mean, everybody's having this COVID problem, but we're having an enormous COVID problem. And it's all part of this sort of criminal justice thing that we've developed. And when you talk about it, you know, I mentioned the prisons um, to, and COVID to a few people, uh, Representative Bentz and A.G. Jennings. And it's just like, well, what are, you, what are you talking? What do you want us to do? I mean, they're prisoners. And it's almost like you have to, because you can, whatever laws you change, you have to get people, their minds have to change. You know, they have to have an, an idea that, okay, if you start with these people being human beings, and we have to figure out how we're going to uh, sort of adjudicate problems, uh, and are you any safer? Uh, but people don't think of it like that. They just immediately think, I support the police, whatever they want. The prisons, that everybody's supposed to be there. Uh, if you're on probation, you did something wrong, but they don't understand it's hard to get housing or other services or anything. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I didn't want to lump them all together, but I guess I will. I mean, let's talk about the, the probation uh, report first. Um, what, what spurred you guys to investigate this, and what, how was the report received um, by uh, state officials and the people in the criminal justice system? So I, I do want to say, I just, I really agree with your preamble about the justice system. As we're talking about any of these justice system reforms, um, it really, and any of them boil down to 
what what do we want our justice system to look like and what do we want it to do? And I think that a lot of the reform work that we're doing now is, um, you know, one, addressing the, um, the racial uh, oppression history in our justice system that, you know, since our justice system was established in the United States, it has oftentimes been used to surveil and control uh, people of color and particularly black people. Um, and that that has, I think, particularly since the, you know, civil rights era of the 1960s, really gone into overdrive with the failed war on drugs and a lot of the uh, tough on crime rhetoric that we saw in the um, 80s and 90s that really led to this explosion of people in our prison system. And so if we're saying that you know, we want to change any aspect of that system, whether it's policing or probation or the death penalty uh, or debtor's prisons. Um, it's really understanding the, that we have to look at the system fundamentally differently and look at it in a way that affirms people's human rights and, and their humanity and that we are not trying to establish a system of just punishment, but actually a system of justice, which does not include, I think, only justice, that we're looking at rehabilitation, redemption, and restoration, and that oftentimes punishment does not serve those other three things. Um, and so, you know, in terms of probation, I'm really glad that uh, we at the ACLU of Delaware focused on this issue. Um, we started on the report before I started at the organization. So we've had, we had two researchers who were working uh, for months um, collecting information about probation. And what I can tell you is that, you know, Delaware has, I think, a lot of unique problems with its probation system, but also a lot of problems that we see cut across states um, that, you know, for all the work that's been done over the last 10 to 15 years to help reform our prison system and to get more people out of state prisons and jails, and, and Delaware has done that. You know, we have passed legislation the last five years that has been um, important and has helped to get people out of prison. Uh, we have actually seen where probation continues to be a place where um, more and more people, larger numbers of people are ending up on probation. And we're seeing pretty stark racial disparities in terms of probation numbers. And so here in Delaware, uh, we have the eighth highest rate of probation in the nation. Um, one in 33 Delawareans are under probation control right now in the state. And that leads to um, a lot of money that we're spending on this probation system. But it also leads to, I think, a whole class of people in our state who are essentially relegated to kind of a second-class citizenship. That when you are on probation control, you have to sign an agreement that essentially says, uh, for the privilege of living outside of prison, you have to agree to this set of principles that you're going to live by. And for most folks in the state of Delaware, it's a list of 13 things that they have to promise to do. Some people have a few more, some people have a few less, but it's pretty much the same 13. And that you have to be monitored constantly by the state of Delaware. And that that system, unfortunately, oftentimes leads people uh, to fail and not to succeed. Because um, some of the requirements are, you know, you have to have these regular check-ins with your super, with your probation supervisor. You have to pledge not to travel outside of the state. Uh, you have to uh, not have a dirty urine screen where you don't have any drugs or alcohol in your system. Um, oftentimes, people stay on probation for long periods of time. And so if you spend a year on probation or two years on probation or five years on probation, the chances are more and more likely that you are going to violate one of those terms of probation. And when you do, you end up back in jail. And that's what we found in our 
uh, analysis of the state probation uh, system was that, you know, far too many people are on probation. They stay on it for far too long. And then they go back for these technical violations that were not them committing a new crime, but simply because, you know, they, they had some sort of minor mistake with this list of 13 rules, and that ended them up back into the state prison system. Yeah, I'm uh, very concerned with the impact on housing. Um, I'm talking to an author who was a, a social worker and a counselor in, in Massachusetts. He's a writer now. Phil Wilson is his name. And he just wrote a story about homelessness uh, for current affairs. And I'm trying to get him on to talk about it. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with people stuck in probation systems or stuck in the criminal justice system under these under scrutiny that is basically just to control them. And so you you if you you can't live in certain places or with certain people or where certain things are, but you're also homeless, so you really don't have any option. Uh, people lose their uh, th their housing benefits and, and their affordable housing and their Section Eight benefits that they get. Um, so yeah, it has. I think that's I try to use that because it, as you said, people's first reaction or I shouldn't say people's, but our opponent's first reaction to something like that would be like, well, they committed a crime and these are the rules and you have to follow the rules. It doesn't really matter what they are. And the the answer to that is, first of all, it, it does sort of matter what they are because it, it's, it affects all of us. If people are, are unhoused, if people are in precarious situations because they're being surveilled over minor things, it actually doesn't make us any more safer. It makes everybody more tenuous and it makes everything more dangerous. Um, and so that's like, again, get, getting people to change their minds about that stuff is, um, yeah, if you can think of a good way to do it, let me know. We'll all do it together. <laughs> well, well, and it's interesting because um, one of the things, you know, we're in this weird COVID world, um, but I like to say that COVID um, is teaching us maybe some things that um, used to be normal in the old world that probably should never go back to normal again. And I think uh, our probation system is part of that. You know, we, we actually saw starting in March uh, when, you know, everything uh, shut down that um, our state prison population did drop uh, pretty significantly. And some of that we believe is due to fewer people being sent back to prison on these technical violations for probation. That uh, probation officers, because they didn't want to crowd the state prison system, were not violating people's probation uh, as, as readily. Uh, but also they were doing like meetings a little bit differently. So typically when I'm a probationer and I have to go to my probation officer, if I live in Selbyville, I've got to drive to Georgetown to uh, uh, see my probation officer. So that, you know, is a several mile drive. And um, as a probationer, I may not actually have the ability to drive. Um, that that might be one of the conditions of my probation or that my driver's license was suspended because I couldn't pay my fines and my fees. And so uh, I have to find a family member or someone to drive me. And I might have to go meet with them once a week, once every two weeks, pretty frequently where I'm having to go and eventually I'm not going to be able to get a ride and I miss my meeting with my probation officer. In COVID land, we've been doing um, the, uh, the, um, uh, the actual uh, probation meetings uh, by uh, phone. And that um, that's actually worked a lot better for many people on probation has still allowed for that check in, but again, has not set that person up for failure by requiring them, them to do something that their conditions of probation actually make harder for them to do. Yeah, again, when you when you start to uh, examine it, you do see that it's just a mechanism to keep people sort of stuck. Uh, it is very arduous and. You know, for people who 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 are our opponents, who who do make the argument that I made before, I think when you when you talk about real conditions, you know, somebody in Selbyville has to go to, you know, uh, Georgetown, and they've lost their license because of what's happened, and of course they live in Selbyville, but they work in Salisbury in Maryland across the state line, so they can get a special dispensation to go across the state lines and under these times and these days, but God forbid they get a speeding ticket in Selbyville some other time, then they go back to prison. And yeah, so when you when you kind of can can 
can take those stories and humanize them. I think people understand it a little bit better than just a little, like, why aren't they doing their stuff? I, I don't think people really understand the impact of some of this stuff um, in the community and and really what the what the impact is for everybody, you know? Well, and I think that that's, uh, again, um, where we have to make some changes is, you know, what, what does public safety really mean? You know, again, people have for years, since the 80s and 90s, um, we've said, well, public safety is locking people up and making sure that they're punished for their crime. And I think that what many of us have recognized now is that that actually doesn't help public safety. That if you're talking about, for instance, you know, how we've approached the war on drugs, it was always, well, we've got to incar incarcerate anybody who's taking an illegal drug. Well, if you talk to a public health official, somebody who specializes in uh, drug treatment, they will tell you that incarceration does not usually help someone who is addicted to drugs. Um, and so then if you're looking at somebody who maybe they were uh, convicted for a drug crime and then they're on probation, and then one of their conditions of probation is a dirty, is making sure that they take urine uh, tests for their for drugs and they have a dirty urine test, again, sending them back to prison if they've relapsed, is actually probably not the thing that we want to do for that individual to actually help restore them. And that if we're sending them back to prison, they're much more likely to, uh, to have uh, a relapse uh, once they come out. When they do come out, if they do take drugs, they're more likely to die from an overdose because they've been off of the drugs for a while. And that they might be further criminalized, that if we're adding on yet another criminal conviction onto their uh, record, then it's harder for them to get housing and employment and get educational grants and be able to turn their life around. And so we're really just digging the hole deeper for those individuals. And we're actually making our communities less safe because then people won't be able to reintegrate successfully into uh, society and actually uh, be able to move past whatever, you know, interaction with the criminal justice system that they've had. Yeah, so speaking of interactions with the criminal justice system, we'll move on to uh, the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. Um, I had a, I would say probably an unproductive conversation with the Attorney General on this um, because I tried to take the tack that we are, that sort of we're talking about, where it's like you have to sort of change your mind, get your mind around what's actually happening. And so why would something like this be in place? Why, why should... Um, armed agents of the law of the state who are the only people who have the right to do violence um, why why do they have less scrutiny not more like I, I understand they have a union and there's like work rules but uh, you know given the circumstances that I just described you one would think that we would come up with something where the, the scrutiny is actually a little bit higher because of the you know that they can shoot and kill people um, but yeah when, uh, nobody wants to have that conversation, and it's it's always sort of what restrictions they can sort of claw back. Um, and I know that's going to be important. That's going to be a big uh, a big issue this this session. Um, I wonder what um, you guys will be doing on that specifically. Um, what kind of lobbying you'll be doing? What sort of what things you think we can address and claw back? And just what your general take on the whole thing is? Sure. Um, so. I will say this has been one of the um, sort of biggest whiplashes for me as a relatively new transplant to Delaware coming to hear from Ohio um, is really the access to public information um, that Delaware's uh, uh, freedom of information laws, I, I think, are extremely uh, uh, secretive and that it's very hard for members of the public to get information about a whole range of issues that if I was in Ohio, I could put a public records request in and get information pretty quickly. Well, you, we, we, uh, we manage a tax haven here and we launder money through here. I don't know if you're familiar with that part of that financial part of it, but yeah, I mean, ten, generally small, tiny little tax havens like to operate with as much secrecy as humanly possible, or maybe not even humanly possible. Uh, and yeah, we run into this in the journalism side and I'm sure you guys get, uh, are, are running into it, uh, on, on this side too. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's, it's especially, I think pernicious 
in the uh, law enforcement context that it, it is extremely difficult for any member of the public, any member of the media, to get information about what our police forces are doing. That if you want to know about misconduct, about investigations, about a whole range of um, of things that are happening with our law enforcement officers and with our police departments, it, it is virtually impossible for us to know any of that information. And I think that that has become a real barrier to effective police practices. And I can speak to this with at least a little bit of uh, experience. Um, when I was at the ACLU of Ohio, uh, I, my first year on staff, I was actually the field organizer that was assigned to uh, the Cincinnati area. And for folks that may not remember, um, in the early 2000s, Cincinnati looked very much like Minneapolis did this past year. Um, they had uh, major uprisings in the city in the early 2000s after uh, the shooting deaths of 11 uh, uh, Black men in the city over a period of about a year and a half. And the, the, the city, uh, you know, was just in complete turmoil. And the ACLU actually became the legal force uh, to get changes to the city's police practices. And it's still hailed as really one of the most effective police reform programs um, in the nation. Uh, we uh, typically, when a police consent decree happens, it is usually just an agreement between the Department of Justice and the city that is under uh, that, that is being sued by the Department of Justice, um, and it leaves the community out of that equation altogether. We, as the ACLU, came into that process, and we represented all uh, Black residents of the city of Cincinnati, and we became a uh, actual partner sitting at the table for that consent decree uh, with the city and with the Department of Justice. And this was back in you know, the early 2000s when John Ashcroft was Attorney General of the United States, not known for being a huge police reform advocate. And so we were the ones who were sitting at the table pushing that agenda. And it was really important because we included the public um, at the ground floor for all of the conversations, all the discussions that were happening around police and reform and helping to guide the actual solutions and a big part of it was getting information out to the public uh, and making sure that we had a transparent system in place. Because when, when there is a lack of trust between two parties, transparency becomes even more important. Because if, if I know you, Rob, and I trust you already, you know, you can go do stuff and I don't have to see what you're doing and I can trust. I can say, yeah, I, I know Rob's a pretty good guy. He's not going to, you know, do anything bad to me. But if you have decades and decades of history and abuse and oppression and feelings of not wanting to trust or work with one another, and then you keep the system completely transparent, trust just can never be built. And unfortunately, that, that's where we are. Uh, here in Delaware is that we have a system that has prevented the public from knowing really anything about our police force and being able to have any insight into what's happening. And then that's also prevented us from having any kind of accountability to police officers or police officers having accountability to us. And so trust just never gets built. And so we have, you know, communities here all throughout the state that just historically do not trust police. And it's very difficult to imagine when they ever will if we continue to have the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights that prevents any of that transparency and prevents uh, uh, the community from being able to hold police officers accountable. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to even explain the name of it. The concept just doesn't, you know, as you said, no one's ever going to trust that kind of power when you actively seek to skirt responsibility. So, you know, I, if you're, if you don't want to be held accountable, considering the context that we talked about that there's, there's no way forward. Um, so yeah, I don't, what, are there any particular issues that you think is, are going to be able to kind of, uh, open up some sort of, 
information to become available for just review and due diligence? I mean, what, what type of things do you think can happen in the short term, if any? So I think that there is more opportunity now than ever before to make changes with uh, police reform. It's one of the reasons why, you know, we as the ACLU, we relaunched our Vote Smart Justice Delaware work uh, for the September primary this year, where we focused on the city of Wilmington and we polled all of the mayoral and city council candidates uh, around their positions on uh, a 10-point police reform program. And we then educated the public about their positions. And the good news was is that there was a lot of um, consensus around the candidates. Um, Of those who won office, uh, 92% of them agreed with us on all on on our on our 10 point plan, and so there was a lot of there, there's a lot of places where people will agree, and we're already seeing where that's bearing some fruit. So um, you know, we'll, the city of Wilmington just passed uh, its uh, civilian complaint review board, um, which you know has taken decades to get passed, and I know you know there are some shortcomings of the board. Um, because of the state uh, law enforcement officers' bill of rights, they can't hold people, they can't hold police officers accountable uh, because of the way that the law enforcement officers' bill of rights is written. They don't necess- they won't necessarily be able to get access to those investigatory records because of the way that the law enforcement officers' bill of rights is written. They might not get cooperation from the, the police department because of Leo Bohr. And so there are limitations to it, but the fact that we have passed it and that the city has committed to doing that I think gives us the ability then to go to Dover and to push for changes that would make things like the Civilian Complaint Review Board uh, more effective um, so that when they do convene in 2022, which is when they're supposed to start, would actually give us the ability to have an effective civilian review process. Um, the, The other areas, I think, again, we have this law enforcement accountability task Force that's been meeting um, in Dover around various issues. So it's a ta- so it's a task force around various issues. I think. Well, they have like four subcommittees, and uh, I will say I, I, I sense the cynicism, and I share it. I'm, uh, sorry, whenever, I, I, I'm sorry, I was so uh, so. No, no, no. When, when it, whenever a task force is convened, my antenna automatically go up, and I'm like, oh gosh, is anything going to get done? And I don't know. I mean, it's still early in the task force process, but what I will say is that, you know, the fact that we have the task force put together and the fact that there are still so many people throughout the state who are passionate about police reform and the fact that we had the conversation that we did this past year, we at the ACLU, we have already decided we are making the revision of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights one of our top priorities for 2021 and 2022 legislative session. We're going to be pushing for more transparency uh, in the system. We're going to be pushing for the ability for um, uh, civilian review boards to be able to hold police officers accountable. And we're going to be pushing for changes to use of force that also in the state, when there have been investigations of police officers, officers haven't been able to be held accountable because of the way that the state law is written and that it gives so much discretion to the officers that it's it's almost impossible to find a scenario where an officer would actually be held uh, to account for their actions based off of the way that the Delaware state law is written on those issues. And so I think those are all issues that we actually have more opportunity now than we ever have in, in modern history to actually change those things in Delaware state law. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously I'm extremely... Um critical of of the task force uh, universe uh especially here in delaware we've had you know so many of them and, and accomplished very little um but i will say and like to your point about the wilmington uh, civilian review board while they won't have any power and of course our, our our dunderhead mayor will make it clear that it can't really do anything because it doesn't have the information what it can do is point that out it can be the person it can be the group saying hey this was just done in secret something's up here and so somebody has to be sort of raising the flag. Uh, I think what you said about um, the, the the law enforcement officers' bill of rights and and you be, that being an ACLU priority for a, for two years, 
Um, you know, we just had a summer even with COVID where it was unprecedented amount of, uh, of demonstration, of civil disobedience and, and unrest. And I think all those things together sort of portend, you know, some movement. Um, and, you know, we've elected some new legislators who will be keen uh, to, to address these issues because uh, people were in the street this summer, to, to, for lack of a better analogy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, while I am um, a cynic about all of those things, I do understand that it's a process and it's, it's nice to start the process uh, in front, uh, you know, behind this, this, this huge movement that we had over the summer and um you know and see where it goes so it's certainly better than it's ever been uh, as you said you know it, we've never been in a, in a situation where uh, we were even going to get to the table and start having these conversations so I, i'm 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 all for it definitely yeah the other thing i'm hopeful for with the ccrb here in wilmington is yes they are charged with looking at individual uh, counts of misconduct. So if an officer has a complaint lodged against them because they harassed or, you know, uh, injured a person, they can look into that. They also have the ability, though, to look at systemic issues. Um, so, you know, here in uh, Wilmington, we've had um, an unfortunate long history with this program called Operation Safe Streets which allows for uh, police officers to partner with probation officers to essentially just skirt around people's Fourth Amendment uh, rights and go to their house or their car or their place of work and do a search um, at, at any time. And uh, there hasn't been a uh, report about Operation Safe Streets since 2006. That's the last time we have any data about Operation Safe Streets. And so, you know, that could be something that um, you know, the CCRB take up is looking at some of these systemic issues of what what is Operation Safe Streets? How is that operating in the entire city? What are some of the racial demographics? What are the number of people who are not on probation who are ensnared in this program? How is it impacting police community relations? That they can also look at those kind of 30,000 foot issues and not just the individual things, which I think could be very, very valuable to policing reform in Wilmington. Yeah. Well, I want to ask a, a sort of a different question, and it sort of goes back to this idea of priorities, like you said, what priorities would be, and also just sort of looking at all of the rights. Can you protect all the rights for all the people and who is going to get mad, you know? Um, so uh, gun gun rights and gun control has been this has been a very big issue for the past couple of years. Um, the, the, the bill last session or the session before, whatever it was, um, uh, sort of failed, uh, in a, in a sort of, ignom uh, you know, in a, in a way that, uh, actually retired somebody. Uh, but the Moms Demand Action Group is a very big organizing group here. Um, I respect, uh, some of the campaign work they've done and the, the time they put in. Um, but on the other hand... You know, is this, number one, a priority? Does the ACLU as a Delaware entity have a sort of a stance on any of these issues in Delaware? And, 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 and just a, a, a general, you know, as a general principle, what is, this, what is the ACLU stance on the Second Amendment? Sure. And it's, it's always something difficult for us as an organization because, again, we cover all of the Bill of Rights, all of the Constitution, all of the federal laws and state laws that grant people different rights and liberties. And so there always has to be some prioritization, right? That um, we can't do all the things at all times. And so as uh, a national organization, but then also as individual state affiliates, we may have to prioritize different things. So for instance, um, you know, there may be some state affiliates that say privacy rights is their number one thing because they have specific things that um, make that a, a huge priority for their organization. Whereas in Delaware, maybe we say, eh, that's not the top of our priority list. Maybe we'll kind of jump in to be a second fiddle every so often, but it's not going to be the top of our list. And then we might have to say, uh, other states might say, well, you know, smart justice, because, you know, we have horrible racial disparities or we have, you know, really high numbers of incarceration, that that has to be a priority. 
And then there are other states that smart justice is not a priority, that they've moved other things in their priority list. So we are different across the country with all 53 affiliates. Um, what I will say around uh, the Second Amendment is, you know, we at the ACLU, I mean, we recognize the Second Amendment exists and that uh, there are, you know, at least some rights to uh, uh, the, uh, being able to have a firearm. I think many folks in our organization um, uh, disagree with um, some of the uh, uh, Second Amendment um, uh, legal theories that have come out, particularly in the last 10 to 15 years um, since the Heller decision uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court that sort of granted uh, this individual right to a firearm and has sort of equated the, our Second Amendment rights with our First Amendment rights, that there can't be, you know, reasonable um, restrictions on some of those um, Second Amendment rights, similar to how we sometimes look at our First Amendment rights. And I think what most folks at the ACLU would say is that actually we believe that there can and should be reasonable restrictions on um, Second Amendment rights. Um, uh, we, we, what, what's interesting, our national executive director, Anthony Romero, uh, says this a lot. Um, he says, well, you have the NRA and the NRA has um, like a, you know, $500 million budget or whatever their <laughs> amount of budget is. And they focus on one amendment. He's like, you know, if we could just ever get as big as the NRA, then we might actually do a little bit more work on our second amendment. Um, but that we have a whole bunch of other things that we have to direct our time to and that so so we don't typically get as involved on Second Amendment things. There have been issues, though, over the years. I mean, um, different affiliates, again, do get involved with Second Amendment things. I know that there have been lawsuits in Montana and Florida and a couple other places around um, various Second Amendment issues. But, you know, generally we we see it as, you know, there there can and and potentially should be some restrictions on your Second Amendment rights, that you don't have the right to walk around with a nuclear bomb on your back, right, <laughs> uh, for the right to firearms. Um, and that, um, you know, we, we support uh, those, those things that help to protect public safety. And that the Second Amendment has to also be balanced with some of the other amendments, right, and some of the other things guaranteed under the Constitution, that we have the right to um, life and liberty, and that sometimes uh, Second Amendment rights can be used as a way to um, uh, infringe upon rights guaranteed in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and that uh, there's, there, there's, I think, a whole um, uh, 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 equation that, or a calculus that also needs to be done of looking at the Second Amendment through be through a racial justice lens as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you uh, pretty uh, fairly. I get into this conversation quite often here um, simply because, you know, I, I do think that the regulation and control n needs to be uh, stepped up just for safety reasons uh, and just for administrative reasons. But I, the reason I ask you and I found it very interesting is be because of your position and because it's a uh, it's it's been a, a a top or a hot topic in the state. It's something that it's it, it, that your paths are going to cross, you know. And 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 how much can we um, organize and 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 advocate for um, with this new general assembly? Like, how are we going to prioritize and figure out, you know, what we're going to push and and what's most important to people's material conditions? And so, yeah, I, I just I find it very interesting as a as an issue to track because. It's not one of my top priorities. Um, I, I do appreciate the arguments that are being made. I also appreciate that they have an organized, they, they do have a well-organized um, group of advocates and, and organizers. Uh, and so it should be interesting to see how, um, you know, some of these priorities shake out when the General Assembly starts. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we're looking to... Um, What's happening in our communities, you know, certainly the availability of um, firearms and the lack of restrictions on them, um, you know, may have may, may be contributing to, uh, you know, rise in violence and death 
um, and, and crime. And then I think we have to look at issues beyond that, that it's not just availability of the guns, that that's maybe one piece of the puzzle, but there's all of the other things. And so, you know, looking at reducing gun violence um, is not divorced from also looking at, you know, reinvestment in our social service safety nets and our education system, uh, in, re in uh, reforming our justice system, that all of those things are a part of the same puzzle um, and yeah. that, we have to think about how we um, match those things together. Um, I, you know, I, I think we would say, and I, I would personally also say, like, I'm, I'm not in favor of eliminating all guns forever and ever and ever. I mean, as I mentioned, I grew up in a conservative area where people hunted. I was a Boy Scout. I actually was a member of the NRA because I was a sharpshooter uh, shooting a rifle as a kid at the um, uh, shooting range at Boy Scout camp. And you know, I, I appreciated actually getting an education on firearms and how to handle them respectfully. So I think that there, it, it's not talking about an elimination, but also, well, aren't there some common sense ways that we can both protect uh, people's public safety and health, uh, respecting racial justice and how firearms and guns have been used to bring racial violence onto some communities in our country? Um, while also, um, you know, uh, respecting that some people do want to have firearms and that that uh, is at least in some ways guaranteed under the Constitution. I just don't think at the, yeah. um, at, at the way that the current legal theories and that the U.S. Supreme Court has blessed since this uh, Heller decision about a decade ago. Yeah, and I, I like having the conversation, too, simply because, as you said, these do sort of tie in. It's just different, bigger, smaller pieces of sort of the same puzzle. Um, people bring up, you know, uh, suicide as a, as, a, as a societal problem. Uh, I think most of them are handguns. If I had to, I don't remember exactly. Maybe they're pills now, but there's a lot of handgun suicides. And I would just say that, you know, this, as you said, uh, Medicare for all with a, with a strong, uh, stipend for you know mental health and other health things that everybody gets for f for free because they're a citizen uh, or other social services as you said i think go a, a much longer way in solving some of the some of the problems that people associate with with just guns in in, in any way you know i talk about stuff that happens in the city you know kids um you know just in gangs uh you know with beefs passing around a nine millimeter you know, the, the ways that we address that are not to ban a nine millimeter uh, or to make it or if you get caught with one to, you know, to send you away for 20 years. That's not the way there. That is a problem. That's a real problem. But I think we need to talk about it in uh, in ways that will really address the root cause of it um, rather than, you know, rather than doing something and, and making a trade off that we probably ought not to make. Yeah, I, I generally agree with you. I was brought up uh, around guns, too, you know, learn how to handle them and fire them. I, I have no affinity towards them or anything. I don't really care one way or the other. Um, but, yeah, I don't know whether I don't know whether all of the issues that we associate could be could be better solved in another manner, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I go, it, just to bring us full circle, since I said, you know, uh, as, a, as a young kid, one of my first interactions with the ACLU was, was post-Columbine and the Marilyn Manson stuff. I mean, you know, this, I think school shootings has been another area where, of course, people have been, and rightfully so, very concerned about mass shootings and how to prevent those. And, you know, I think, the the restrictions of certain types of, of firearms um, could help with that, could help with at least making sure that mass shootings don't have the, the number of people dead that they do. When you can, you know, shoot off 100 rounds in a minute, um, you can kill a lot of people with 100 rounds. And do you really need to have access to a firearm that does that type of thing? Um, but at the same point, even if we were to ban all guns in America, I don't think that that would hit at the underlying reasons why something like school shootings happen, right? right. That they're due to um, mental health, they're due to potentially issues within families, access to services, um, you know, all of those things are things that fall outside of addressing those, uh, that, that gun issue. 
and that we can't forget about, um, about that as well. And that also in the solutions that we put into place that they don't end up being maybe worse than the problem in, in the beginning. I mean, one of the first things we worked on when I came to the ACLU of Delaware was looking at school resource officers in schools, which became in, in vogue after Columbine. And it was like, well, we've got to add police to our schools. And now we see after two decades of that, you know, the school to prison pipeline is chugging along even faster than ever before. And especially for kids with disabilities, students of color. Um, and, you know, I, I think we have some reckoning to do as to like, well, have we instituted something that actually might not be preventing the issue that we brought, brought them in for in the first place? And is it actually leading to worse outcomes for some of these students um, because of that solution that we put into place? Yeah, the police and schools has come full circle now. Now we're arguing, we're trying to take it back. It's funny, uh, I got in, involved in this a little bit um, and spoke on it at the Red Clay meeting. Um, yeah, people have a very short memory. Like, uh, people are arguing they feel safer. I'm like, you went to school with me, man. We didn't have cops in the school. <laughs> like, people think things have always been this way and how, they can't imagine that they're, they're not. Um, but it's just like just 10 years ago, they weren't this way. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. I'll never forget one of my colleagues at the ACLU of Ohio, we did a presentation for a school board uh, and we were talking about having a different uh, disciplinary plan and the school board was entirely older white men. And uh, they were like, well, you know, kids these days, they get into fights at the school and we have to send them into, you know, into the justice system if they're violent. And, and she Turn to them and she asked, well, when you were a student, how many of you got into a fight at school? Every single one of them raised their hand. And she said, well, what happened to you? Did you go into the justice system? And they were like, no, we just went to our principal's office and we got like detention and that was it. And she was like, so why are we treating kids today differently than you did? And it, it was such an eye-opening thing because they had never considered that oh, yeah, I was actually given a bit of grace in that situation. And what would have happened to me if I was sent into the justice system at, you know, 12 or 13 or 14? Um, and, and what kind of effect would that have had on my life? Um, so yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting. People do have short memories, I think. Yeah, they sure do. Um, well, speaking of short memories, let's, let's get controversial at the end and, and go back to the beginning. Um, I read the uh, the editorial that the Times ran in 78 when um, the ACLU famously um, defended the right of the American Nazis uh, to march in Skokie. Um, do you think the ACLU would do that today? Uh, yes. I mean, I think that the ACLU would defend controversial speech um, if needed. I think one of the things that, and, and it's interesting because, you know, I was, I was away from the ACLU for about two years, but I was with the ACLU of Ohio during um, the Charlottesville protests and the uh, uh, ramifications from that. And I think that, you know, Charlottesville happening um, has, I think, spurred on a lot of internal discussions as an organization around like, well, how, how do we want to approach some of these free speech issues? And I'll, I'll tell you, like, I think that for a long time, the ACLU uh, took on a lot of these free speech cases, um, essentially in a kind of a giddy fashion of saying, look, we'll defend even like the worst of the worst of the worst person. And I think that the conversation that's evolved, and I, and I think it's been a really helpful conversation, has been um, really saying, well, wait, what is, what is the, the purpose of us picking cases? Um, and shouldn't we use, so when, whenever we select a case as the ACLU, we always go through actually a pretty rigorous process where we identify like how um, bad of a deprivation of civil liberties we're facing. Um, are there other organizations who would come in and defend the individual? How many, how much uh, organizational resources will it take? And also, is it in line with our strategic plan? Um, and, and, and is it something that is going to advance our work overall? And also advance like the law, right? We are we are not just like, um, you know, a regular like law firm. We are an organization that is trying to advance justice and liberty in our nation. And so when we bring something to the courts, 
we want it to um, expand people's rights. And so we have to look at cases under that analysis. And, you know, a lot of the free speech law around whether or not, you know, Nazis can protest or KKK members can protest is pretty established at this point. And we're not really cutting a whole lot of new ground out there in the world. And so I think part of what we, what I have taken from a lot of those conversations is one, um, making sure that we're not just picking up a case because, um, you know, it, it's, it's an issue that falls into that controversial speech bucket and that's something that we've done as an organization for so long. But is it going to actually advance First Amendment rights and protection? Are there other organizations or other entities that would pick up um, uh, representation of these individuals? So, like, you know, uh, I think um, uh, uh, Milo, I can't remember Milo's last name, uh, but he's a. Yeah, uh, he's a provocateur. Yiannopoulos, I think was his last name. We've defended him on occasion, and then there are other occasions where we have not, because he can also afford to hire his own attorney, and in some cases has actually wanted his own private attorney to represent him. So, like, we don't always actually have to do that representation, and that we might need to, you know, hold back a little bit because we want to be doing this big lawsuit on probation or LGBT rights or something else within our purview. And so... Um, I absolutely believe, in it, and in, I will just say in the state of Delaware, if a case came up where we had to defend uh, First Amendment rights, that we would absolutely do that. And um, I think that the national organization would, and I think all of the affiliates would as well. I do think, though, that we have started to um, evolve our thinking. And the last point I want to make is that this is not the first time something like that has happened. So, like, when I first started working for the ACLU of Ohio back in the mid 2000s, we were kind of coming out of this period in the 90s and early 2000s where the ACLU was really known for litigating a lot of church state violations. And particularly, they were nativity scenes and Ten Ten Commandment uh, monuments. Um, And we litigated a ton of them. And we, you know, litigated and litigated up to the Supreme Court. We got uh, some, I think, pretty uh, solid constitutional law uh, where it was pretty clearly defined what courts and what you know cities could do in terms of those t- types of displays. And so we kind of got to a point where we were like, us litigating it isn't actually advancing the law anymore. And so we don't want to make that a main priority for us as an organization anymore. And so you will still see, though, that there are times where affiliates or the national office do litigate those those things. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to um, it, it's going to grow. It's going to be different. Like I, for the thing that is coming to my mind is the the Hunter Biden laptop story that came out in the New York Post and. You know, whatever you want to think about it, I don't think anybody uh, said anything about the veracity of the material. It was just simply, you know, kind of gossipy. You know, it's just, you know, drugs and sex tape, which actually makes them look cool. Um, but the idea that that Twitter and the social media could shut down, uh, could not allow you to share the story, and also shut down their Twitter account, and not, and so basically that story couldn't disseminate based on the methods by which information now disseminates. And so while these are all private organizations that can enact these rules, the, 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 the answer on the ground is this is the, this is the utilities that we have to disseminate this information. If they're able to just turn the switch off based on anything, it's probably that's like to me, that's where, as you said, it's going to it's going to grow into something else. You have to be ready to have the argument in some other you have to fight the battle in some other place. And I wonder what I, I that's that's the thing that makes me that makes me think. Of. But that's right. And, and same with our church state stuff. Like, again, we're not litigating nativity scenes and, um, you know, crucifixes everywhere. But there are plenty of other you know, First Amendment violations that deprive people their ability to uh, worship their religion or uh, impose state uh, views on religion on people that we bring all the, as litigation uh, efforts all the time. 
And so I think that's the same for our First Amendment work is for a long time, our First Amendment work was really focused on this idea of we have to defend um, controversial people and ideas and, and, and people whom we do not agree with. I think we will continue to do that, but that it's probably just not, it's not going to look the same that us, you know, defending a, a protest is probably not going to cut new constitutional ground. Us defending um, people who might be uh, online sharing ideas, who might be facing increased police surveillance or censorship uh, from um, the government uh, because of their beliefs are all things that, you know, could be a very fertile ground for cutting new constitutional challenges. And so again, that's our charge as an organization is that we're not just about an organization to kind of like hold the line of constitutional laws and just keep litigating the same cases over and over and over again. We're, we're an organization that is uh, trying to push the envelope for constitutional rights and liberties. And so we have to find what that next case is that's going to expand our First Amendment rights or what that new threat is going to be for constitutional rights or for your First Amendment rights and address that rather than being focused on here, here's how things have worked for the last 30 or 40 years. Um, you know, we have to grow and evolve just like the Constitution does. Well, Mike, you you famously uh, moved here from from Ohio. I think was it in the springtime? Was it May or May, April? I, I officially moved in June, June. Uh, but I, I started virtually. It was a nice thing about COVID. I could do this virtually. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. You 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 have not you have yet to experience our little shire in, in non COVID times. If if we're ever able to go back outside and and, and meet each other, uh, you're, you'll you'll be welcome here at the studio. Maybe we'll go out and have a beer somewhere. But you know. We don't know whether that's going to exist ever again. So uh, if it does, you will definitely be welcome back. Um, I, I want to thank you for taking the time today um, to talk with us. And um, I suspect we'll be, we'll be talking soon as this, uh, as this General Assembly kicks off. Yeah, it's going to be a busy year, but I think it's going to be a really good year. I, I am hopeful and optimistic and always happy to talk to you about what the ACLU is doing. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Uh, that is our show for today. You know where to find us. Patreon.com slash The Highlands Bunker. Highlands Bunker on Twitter. We'll see you soon, everyone. Left is best. <laughs>